If you have a Bible, open it to Luke 22. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. If you're new here or if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We have been preaching through Luke for, what, four years? And if you're new to this church, we like to go through books of the Bible, which is a good thing, because when you come, you get to hear the Word. But we're in Luke, verse, or chapter 22, 24 through 30. We're going to read together. I'm going to back us up a little bit so we can get some context from last week. And then we'll pray, and then we'll unpack these verses here this morning together. I want to pick up in actually verse 14 and read last week's sermon so we can get a good idea of what Jesus is talking about here this morning. Verse 14, Luke 22, here's what it says. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at this table with me. For the Son of Man will be betrayed as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to betray him. And then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them like to be called benefactors. It is not to be like this among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one who is serving. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who is serving. But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. And I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my Father has bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. I do pray, as as Grady has prayed, as Leanne has prayed, God, that you would just reveal to us the truth of your word, that you might sanctify your bride this morning. God, that your people who are here, who love you, who long to see your day coming, would be refreshed, would be encouraged, would be exhorted, would be rebuked. God, that we would leave here more sanctified than we came. And Lord, if there are any here who have yet to, to confess and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who have yet to embrace Jesus, who have yet to gain a seat at his table, I pray today would be that day. God, that they would hear the word, respond, and be saved, and heaven would rejoice. Lord, to you be the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, Luke 22, 24 through 30. I want to look at 24 here for a couple minutes, give us some background into this text, okay? Verse 24, Jesus says that a dispute also arose among the disciples about who should be considered the greatest, And the greatest here is talking about being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
the kingdom of Israel. And in order to unpack this, we have to look at verse 23, where they're arguing about who might it be who's going to betray Jesus. So this is like a paradoxical situation here. Jesus just told the disciples in an intimate setting that one of them's going to actually hand him over to be betrayed. And so I think naturally they start arguing among one another, like, who's it going to be, right? Who's going to betray Jesus? And out of that, I think possibly could come this argument about the greatest where they could say, it's, it's not going to be me. No, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm not going to betray the Lord. And so I think that leads us into this passage here this morning. And it's sad. It's sad because the disciples once again miss the kingdom. They don't understand the kingdom of the Messiah. And I want to propose for us two reasons why it is that the disciples don't get it again. Two reasons. Number one is they do not understand the cross. They don't understand the cross. Just last sermon, which to them might have been 30 minutes previous to this argument, Jesus tells them that he's eager to have this meal because he's about to suffer. He's about to suffer. And in Luke 18, about two months ago, we preached through this reality when Jesus point blank told his disciples, look, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise on the third day. And what was the response of the disciples? It says that they didn't understand these things. It was hidden from them. That point blank, hearing that Jesus would die on the cross, they, they just didn't believe it. They didn't see it. And so this is a major problem that has been woven through the theme of Luke. The disciples are not seeing the kingdom rightly. And when they don't see the cross, they don't understand that the, the cross comes before the crown. Okay? Suffering is the pathway into this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. And we're going to see in just a little bit the, the greatest example of that is Christ himself. But secondly, they don't understand the cross, but they also don't understand the Old Testament scriptures. This is important. Okay? These are Jews. They've grown up in the Jewish society. They've heard the scriptures. They're familiar with the scriptures. They've been with Jesus for three years. And yet I think it's true that they don't understand the Old Testament. And particularly, they don't understand how the Old Testament scriptures point us to Christ. Okay? And there's a term within theological circles called biblical theology. And it's simply a term that's, that, that talks about the grand narrative of scripture. Understanding God's weaving his perfect plan from before the foundation of the world through the Old Testament scriptures into the new. And we need to understand this if we're going to grasp what it means to be part of this kingdom as his disciples as well. In a couple months, well, I don't know how far, a couple months, we're going to be preaching through Luke 24. And I want to read just a couple snippets here so you get an idea of why they didn't understand the Old Testament scriptures. In Luke 24, Jesus has already been risen from the dead. He's on a road to a town called Emmaus, and he approaches two disciples who are essentially deeply saddened because they can't understand why Jesus has been crucified. They thought he was the Messiah who was going to come, who was going to conquer, who was going to reign and overthrow Roman government, who was going to establish the kingdom of Israel once again. And so they're very saddened. And as they're walking on this road, Jesus approaches them. They can't recognize him because he's been resurrected. And he goes on to actually open up their hearts, it says, and to reveal to them how they had missed the entire Old Testament. And listen to what he says, Luke 24, 25 through 27. Jesus said, How foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Wasn't it necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is amazing. This is amazing. I think a few weeks ago, Jesus, or, uh, Grady might have mentioned how we have to have a Christ-centered view when we read the Old Testament. This, is, this comes from Jesus. This doesn't come from Grady or any other man's opinion. Jesus himself is revealing to them the Old Testament. And then in John chapter 5, Jesus is confronting some Pharisees. And these Pharisees are not liking Jesus. And they're boasting in the fact that they believe Moses, that they have the law of Moses, that the prophet Moses is who they follow. And listen to what Jesus says as he rebukes these Pharisees, pointing again to himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, for on whom you have set your hope. For if you would have believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But as it is, you do not believe what he wrote. How is it that you will believe my words also? So what Jesus is saying here is he's actually validating Moses, the whole Torah, the Pentateuch, pointing to himself as Messiah. And explicitly, Moses, if you recall, he talks about how there will come a greater prophet, one after him that the people should listen to. And this is none other than Jesus himself. But I think most importantly, we have to look at the prophet Isaiah. Because in Isaiah 53, we get the most intricate snapshot of the crucifixion. We get the most vivid detail about how this Messiah would actually come and suffer in his conquering. That he wouldn't come the first time riding a stallion, slaying his enemies and overthrowing the Roman government, but he'd actually come and be put upon a cross and suffer and die. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, pointing to Christ. It says that he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If the disciples were to understand these two things, the cross and how the Old Testament points to Jesus in that cross work, this next conversation would not even be happening. Wouldn't be happening. There would be no room to be debating on who's the greatest in the kingdom if they understood how the Savior was going to conquer. Let's continue on. Let's look at verses 25 through 26. 25 through 26, Jesus says, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them like to be called or want to have themselves called benefactors. He says, it is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest. And whoever leads should be like one serving. The term benefactor here is one who would do good on behalf of the people. It would be somebody who was in leadership, government, government who would actually be caring about his subjects. 
one who is leading well, who is benefiting his people. And Jesus here is, is using the Gentile kings or leadership as an example of what not to do when you're in a position of greatness. And that is that they would call themselves benefactors. This is really a, a slap in the face when all the while they were only concerned about themselves. They weren't really doing good for the people. They were lording it over the people. They were suppressing the people. And the Jews should know this because they're sitting under Roman tyranny. They're sitting under Gentile rule. And they know that the Gentiles do not like the Jews, but even so much more, they don't even treat their own people right. And so Jesus is contrasting here. That's what you should not look like, but what should a true benefactor look like? What should one who has authority, how should they be carrying that out? And that is that they should become a servant. What does it mean to be the youngest? What does it mean to be a servant in verse 26? He's using two different analogies here to say the same thing, and it's pretty simple, I think. If you have somebody who's the youngest, per se, in the family, they normally don't have the rights, right? They're normally the one on the low totem pole. They don't get all the stuff. They have a position of great humility. Sadly, my son Tate, eight, nine months old, that's him. He's going to be on that totem pole. And Jesus here has used this analogy before in his ministry. He's pulled little children aside. He's told us to look at them and to consider them and say, if you don't become like these little children, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's to say that we must be humble to receive Christ's kingdom, to live out this kingdom, to have any position of authority. We must be like the youngest. We must consider that we ultimately have no rights in his kingdom. And in the same way, he says, whoever wants to be a leader must be a servant. This is the same type of analogy, just a different angle. And he'll unpack that more in just a second. But I want to stop and I want to ask us for, for a quick sec, some application. Because while Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, right, specifically, this would extend to us, right, 2,000 years later, if you're in Christ. And so here's a couple things I want to ask. What should it look like for us, 2018, Christians in Maricopa Springs Church, living out our life, what should it look like for us to become the greatest? A couple points I want to suggest. Number one is we need to prefer one another over ourselves. This comes right from the text. Are we doing that in our marriages? I can confess. I sinned against my wife this morning. I wasn't preferring my wife. Are we repenting of those things? Are we preferring one another? Secondly, do we treat others as we want to be treated? Right? This is like elementary. People don't even love Jesus, walk around in schools going, treat one another as you want to be treated. This is standard stuff, but this comes right from the scriptures. Are we actually treating our neighbor as we want to be treated? And if we are, then we won't be lording over people like Gentile kings. We'll be serving people. Thirdly, Romans 12 tells us that we should be outdoing one another and showing each other honor. That's big. Grady said before he got up here, some friend who used to talk about whatever he does, do it to win. I think that's contradiction here to the text, but Romans 12 says we should outdo one another in showing honor. That's, that's amazing. Like, we, in a good, pure way, with no sin, should be trying to, to outdo one another in showing each other honor. Think about your marriage on that one. And lastly, we should consider others more significant than ourselves. This comes right from uh, Philippians 2 which I'll look at in a couple minutes. To consider others more significant, more prominent. Not that anybody in the kingdom is essentially less than or God looks upon us and despises us, but the reality is do we look at our neighbor, our brother, our sister, and think that we should deserve more? 
We should have a higher place. We're better than them. Or do we humble ourselves and consider others before ourselves? This is how we need to respond. Let's press on. Verse 27. Jesus elaborates on this analogy a little bit more to drive home this gentle rebuke. And this is a rebuke, okay? And he's gentle. I think we need to take note of that, how Jesus here loves his disciples, even after they've missed it so many times. And verse 27 points to the right example. And it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus here says, For who is greater, the one who reclines or sits at the table, or is it the one who's serving that person sitting at the table? Isn't it the one who reclines at the table? Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Maybe to help you think about this a little bit more, uh, consider maybe a high-end steak restaurant, right? People go in and are literally spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a meal. And consider who might be the greatest, right? The guy who has hundreds of dollars, who's just buying lobster and steak, or the busboy who's coming alongside picking up crumbs, taking napkins, picking up spilt drinks, Nobody recognizes him. He, he is despised within the restaurant. He's the low man on the totem pole. I mean, the, the, the answer is, is pretty simple. The man ordering the food is greater in one sense, we would all say. But Jesus says that, no, that's not the case. And he uses himself. He says, but I am among you as the greatest of all time, God in flesh, king of kings, lord of lords. I am among you as the one who humbles himself and serves. There's no greater example Mark 10, 45, Jesus early on in his ministry says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And the climactic point of his service is to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, God, perfect from all eternity, humbled himself and became a man so that he might serve and save sinners. In John 13, just a little bit prior to this meal, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, okay? And he says the same things here. He's pointing to the same reality. The disciples should have been washing one another's feet, but that was a place of lowliness. And nobody suggested to wash feet that day, especially Jesus' feet. You would think, man, they would be arguing over who can be the greatest to wash his feet, but instead they don't. And so Jesus, what does he do? He teaches them the same lesson. He takes off his outer garment, he gets on his knees, and he washes dirty, smelly feet as God in the flesh, displaying this reality of what it means to be a servant, what it means to be great in his kingdom. And then lastly, Philippians 2. Philippians 2, Paul writing to the church of Philippi, speaking about unity that the church is to have with one another. What does he go to as his example? He goes to Christ displaying the greatest form of humility where God, literally, who created Adam out of dust. That's real, guys. God literally spoke and created the heavens and the earth, every creature, all animals, the sea and all that is in them. And he made man out of dirt. And he breathed life into him. God himself became a creature. Not that he was created, but he became one of his creatures. He entered into creation as God, as the full God-man. And this is the example. And again, Paul says, and the ultimate point of Jesus' humiliation is that he suffered death, even death on a cross as a Roman criminal. Jesus was sinless, and yet he suffered and he died. Let's continue on. Verse 28. 28 
through 30. Before we dive into this, I want to say I was reading a commentary, and one theologian uh, made the comment about this particular subject, and, and that is this, that the term or concept kingdom in the Bible, it's complex. It's complex. And as I've been studying for weeks now on this, I've come to the conclusion that the kingdom is complex. Um, so as we dive into these last passages, just know I'm going to present some things that I think are right, um, but as Grady has said at time and time, or times before, right, search the scriptures, go and dive in yourself. If you perhaps think I'm wrong, let's talk about it. But I think Jesus is nailing home here at the end and bringing this full circle to, uh, to show his disciples here that while they're arguing over a great position and prominence, he has to instruct them and bring them low to show them how they're actually going to fulfill their role of greatness. It's not that the disciples aren't going to have a role. It's they need to understand how to carry that out in order to properly serve in that position. Just like, for example, pastors in churches. They need to have a, a place of humility. They need to be able to serve in order to fulfill that role. So look at verse 28. Jesus says this now. After he's gently rebuked his disciples, he says, You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me. I'm going to break this down verse by verse. Verse 28. Jesus here is referring to his earthly ministry. He says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. For three years since Jesus called his disciples intimately to come and to follow him, they have stood by Jesus' side. They have been through him as he has suffered along the way, being falsely condemned, falsely treated, right, slandered, and all that takes place through the Gospels. And Jesus here is commending them, and this is, this is humbling, okay? He's commending them because the disciples have missed it a lot, right? These aren't like men that should really be commended. It's more like goodness. They failed miserably. Yet Jesus here is saying and encouraging them that they have stood by him in his trials. I like what Matthew Henry writes about this particular passage. He says, it was but little help that they could give him or service that they could do to him. Nevertheless, he took it kindly that they continued with him. And here, and he here, and he here owns their kindness. Though it was by the assistance of his own grace that they did continue, Christ's disciples had been very defective in their duty. We find them guilty of many mistakes and weaknesses. They were, they were very dull and forgetful, and often they blundered things, yet their master passes all by and forgets it. He does not upbraid them with their infirmities, but gives them this memorable testimonial. Guys, this is sweet if you're in Christ. Because if you're in Christ this morning, you know that you fall short, right? And how sweet it is that Jesus loves his disciples intimately, right? That even appeals to faithfulness in their life. Although he produces that, to him be the glory, he still, right, loves us in that particular way. And it is sweet indeed. I want to drive us real quick to John 15, because as Jesus says here, you've stood by me in my trials, this makes me think of Jesus talking about how he is the true vine and his disciples are the branches and he uses a word in John 15 he says if you abide in me that term abide can maybe better be stated to remain or to stay right it's the idea Jesus is saying look if you stay in me if you keep believing in me if you don't leave like others have you're going to bear a lot of fruit 
And it's to my Father's glory, actually, that you do bear much fruit, right? And so here Jesus is about to get into some fruit that the disciples are going to receive because they've been abiding or remaining in the vine, Jesus Christ. Not because the disciples are worthy, not because they've ultimately earned any type of benefit, but because God is great, God is, is graceful, and he is abundantly merciful to sinners. Let's continue. Verse 29. Here's the fruit. He says, I bestow on you a kingdom. That's kind of a weird word, bestow. It, it means to entrust, to give to somebody, okay? So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to entrust on you a kingdom, just as my Father has entrusted one upon me. So that, here's the reason, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. This type of language is all over the New Testament, it's all over the scriptures. The reality that Jesus has received all authority, all power, all dominion, and he is transferring that mission to his disciples. What Jesus is simply saying here is, look, the Father has granted to me this kingdom, now I'm giving it to you so that you might take it into the world. Okay, I actually preached on this about three months ago, the parable of the ten minas. And there's many things that Jesus is saying the exact same thing in this Gospel of Luke. And so here's what we need to understand, that the disciples here are receiving the gospel. And so while they're thinking, once again, all right, we're going to get set up nice. This is going to be great. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to reign, right? They don't understand that the mission at hand is actually they're going to suffer a lot. And they're going to go out into this world that's dark, full of sin, wicked, and Jesus has redeemed his sheep, and he's sending them out like sheep among the slaughter to go and call in those that are his. It's a mission that's going to be, or it's going to be fulfilled, but it's going to be fulfilled through suffering. And Matthew 28 shows us exactly what Jesus is talking about here to his disciples. Very soon, Jesus is going to leave, and he tells his disciples this, that he's going to go away. And a lot of people probably think, why the heck would he leave? That can't be better. But Jesus says the Holy Spirit of God is going to be sent. And he is going to powerfully work through you guys to extend this kingdom, this mission. And here in Matthew 28, listen to Jesus' own words after he is resurrected. It says, and Jesus came to them, his disciples, and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given or entrusted or bestowed to me. Go therefore with this kingdom, this power, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And at Pentecost, this happened. The Holy Spirit flooded down. The gospel extended. And the story continues to this day. And in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews, listen to what he says about this kingdom, this kingdom that the apostles received, this kingdom that by extension we receive if we're in Christ. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 28 says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What is your posture to receiving this kingdom this morning? If you are in Christ, are you full of zeal for God's kingdom? Are you anticipating the coming day when Christ returns and thus are you living on mission for him now? This is what we're going to dive into next. Jesus is now alluding to 
I believe, a future or eschatological reality for these apostles, these disciples. Let me just back up and say this. Judas is not included here, okay? Judas has already left to betray the Lord. Jesus here has already known that. There, Judas is out of the way. This is concerning the 11 apostles and possibly Matthias, if you're familiar with Acts, who actually fulfilled Judas's spot. Or some have said it's going to be the apostle Paul, who was an apostle untimely born, who in some ways had a major prominent role in establishing this kingdom here on earth. Nonetheless, listen to verse 30. He says, I'm going to give you this kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. There's a term called already and not yet. Okay, the already and not yet. And this is what I think Jesus is pointing to. There is an already reality that if you are in Christ, if you are unified to Christ, if you have fellowship with Christ, and we're going to dive into this in a sec, table fellowship, this is intimacy. Jesus just had the last Passover. That was intimate. There was fellowship there. Because of sin, we can't sit at his table. But through the cross of Christ, by faith, we actually get to be entered back into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. This is intimacy. And if you're in Christ this morning, we already get to experience that in part. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that in Christ are all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and we have received those. Okay? We need to have this mindset because... Day in and day out, you can be on this earth, and it's almost like being blind and fumbling your way through life if you don't understand that literally Christ physically rose out of a tomb. He physically ascended into heaven, and we are, the Bible says, raised with him in a spiritual way in heavenly places now. We reign now. Though we suffer, though it doesn't look like it at times that the church is flourishing, the reality is we reign with Christ now. We are partaking with him at his table. But I think Jesus here is specifically talking to the disciples and he's pointing to something future that's going to be glorious. And that is, I think Jesus is telling them that one day is more real than we are sitting here today, more real than we can leave church and go sit at our tables and enjoy wine and enjoy a meal and enjoy fellowship. One day, the disciples are going to, are going to enter into a place in the new heavens and new earth with Christ at his table. And if we don't think about heaven like this, we're thinking about it wrong. If heaven to you is this place where we, who knows, we just float around, it's not really real, we don't understand, it's not, I don't know, there's, it's just non-real, then, then I don't think you have a right view of what heaven is according to the Bible. And actually, this has been rocking me the last three weeks. And rocking means like changing me, it's been good. Um, it's been changing me because I'm seeing this realized kingdom in a way that I've never seen it before. It's almost like where the scriptures say to taste, to touch and feel and taste, to, to understand this faith that we have. I'm, I'm starting to see this in greater measure as we look ahead to what's going to take place when Christ comes back. And there's going to be a kingdom on this earth where we will be reigning with him. And here I believe he's telling his disciples they're going to participate with him in a special way at that table in his kingdom and then lastly, here's how this is going to work out. And they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a complex part of this passage here. Um, when we think of the word judge, right, you're probably like me, you think condemnation, right? People say, don't judge. Like, hey, you're, you're, doing, you're, you're condemning somebody. The idea of being brought before a judge and sentencing to condemnation. And this word can mean that. It definitely can mean that. 
But I think what this word means and what it can also depict is the idea of ruling over, okay? Presiding over, having authority over, making decisions over. And I think this is consistent with what we're reading about here in this passage. And that is the, the, the apostles are arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus isn't saying, you're not going to have any position of greatness. He's saying, you will have a position of ruling over but here's how you need to carry that out, and here's how you will carry that out. Like a true benefactor, like myself, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will follow my example. And the term tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, this might be controversial, but I think the scriptures point us to believe that Jesus here is not talking about literal ethnic Jews, okay? But rather, the term 12 tribes of Israel is referring to all of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, in Christ Jesus. And we had Revelation 7 read earlier, and the reason why is because in Revelation 7, John, okay, is receiving this vision from the Lord Jesus Christ, and it says that he hears a number, 144,000 Jews from every tribe, 12,000 from each tribe, and as John is writing this down, he's hearing this number, all of a sudden it says that after he hears that number, he now looks and he sees, and he sees a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping the Lamb. And if you go and you read those 12 tribes, Manasseh is inserted into that list, which he wasn't originally one of the 12 tribes. And so what I think Jesus is talking about here is that the term 12 tribes is the fulfillment of God's people. Jesus himself is the true Israel. If you are in Christ by faith, you get to become part of this tree, as it were. Jesus is the true vine. Galatians 6. Flip there real quick. Galatians 6. I think this text shows us, and, and there's many that we could go to, but we're not going to do that this morning. Passages like Romans 9, 10, and 11. Passages like Ephesians chapters 2 and 3. Revelation 21. And honestly, the list goes on and on. But Galatians 6, go to the very last part here. Verse 16, listen to what Paul says. He's writing to believers who, are been, who have been infiltrated by Jude, uh, legalistic Judaism teaching that says that you have to be circumcised if you're going to be saved. So they're saying it's not faith alone, it's faith plus works. And Paul strongly says in this letter, if that's what you believe, you're going to be condemned. Because Christ came to save sinners by grace alone, not by our works. And then look at what he says here at the end, verse 16. He says, And as for all who walk by this rule, the rule that he's talking about is the rule of faith. He says those who have faith, those who are walking by faith, not by works, okay? He says, Peace and mercy be upon them. And your translation might read, And upon the Israel of God. That term and there in the Greek could be translated as namely or that is in this way the Israel of God. So what I think Paul is saying here is all of those who walk by the rule of faith, peace and mercy be upon them. That is upon the Israel of God. Jews and Gentiles, the true people, sealed in Christ before the foundation of the world, through the gospel. And this is interesting because if this is the case, that Jesus is telling, I believe, the apostles here that they are going to have a place when Christ returns where they will be presiding over, ruling over, right, God's people in the new heavens and new earth, which is amazing. 
Because this reveals to us that heaven is going to be a place like earth, but purged of all sin. Imagine millions and millions and millions of saints, cities and towns, living, having ruling and government, no sin, perfect unity, love towards one another. It's going to be amazing. And I think, I think Jesus here is instructing his apostles that they're going to receive this place of greatness. But they need to understand how to receive it. And sadly, they don't get it right away. Okay? They don't get it right away, but they will learn it. Just like all of us are learning obedience, right, through our suffering. When we fall short, we're sanctified. We are chastised by God's goodness. And so, some final application for us this morning is this. First, we need to be humble, right? I think that's evident. Jesus calls us, if we're in his kingdom, to serve with humility, to love one another deeply, to lay down our lives, to consider that our lives are not our own, but we're here for the glory and the kingdom and the majesty of Christ. And secondly, I want this text, and I want you possibly to go home and and read more of it, to change your view of heaven, to change your view of what this earth should be looking like and what's going to come. That heaven to you is more real than you've ever seen it, more tangible than you could feel right now on this earth, so that you will live a life that is worthy of this kingdom. Guys, the Bible, the New Testament, is over-emphatically eschatological, meaning it is very focused on the return of Christ. The, King, or, or the New Testament has an emphasis on, emphasis on Jesus coming back. And in light of that, it should change how we live. It should change how we live. And lastly, I just I want to speak to those possibly here this morning who have not received a place at Christ's table, a call to the unsaved. Look, if you're here this morning and you do not know the good news of God's grace in the sense that you have tasted and received and believed upon Christ, then this morning, today is the day. Do not leave here unrepentant. The word repent means to essentially turn away, to change the mind, to have a mindset that is radically transformed, to bow the knee to Christ in his kingdom, to receive the goodness of his grace, and to turn from sin and to embrace Christ and to follow him. Because here's the reality. Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be glorious for those who are in Christ. It's going to be so good. We don't deserve it. If you're in Christ, you know that, right? We just, we deserve wrath, but he loved us and lavished us. But there are going to be many, the Bible says, who have rejected his goodness and his grace who are going to suffer the wrath of the king of kings. So if you're here this morning, repent. God is kind. He has brought you here this morning to hear and to believe upon his gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is truth and you sanctify your people in the truth. Lord, your kingdom is complex. (laughs) That should keep us humble. God, as we seek to understand, as we seek to obey, as we seek to follow you, Lord, I just pray that your word would do what your word does. Strengthen your sheep, edify the flock. As Grady prayed earlier, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened more and more, that together we would know the depths of your love. God, let us be refined as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we hunger and thirst for your word, as we seek to earnestly desire to be with you one day in the, fu- in the fulfillment of your kingdom at your table, as we experience the already, but we look forward to the not yet. Lord, we bless your name and we praise you for you are worthy to be praised. In Christ's name.
Amen.